Thank you for listening to the Cathedral Church Podcast. We hope this resource inspires you and equips you to walk in everything that God has for you. Last week we preached a message entitled, What Good Thing? I took you to Mark chapter 2 and verse 15, where the Bible says later Jesus and his disciples were at home having supper with a collection of disreputable guests. Unlikely as it seems out of that group of people, that notorious group, as likely as it seems, more than a few of them had become followers. Unlikely. We mentioned the list of the unlikely. Noah, a drunkard. Moses, a murderer. Rahab, a prostitute. Jonah, a man who ran from God. Matthew, a tax collector. And Jesus, who was labeled an illegitimate son. Often, the most unlikely people do the most unbelievable things. John chapter 1, verse 46. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing, speaking of Jesus, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, why don't you come see? Can any good thing come out of that situation? Can any good thing come out of that life? Can any good thing come out of that past? Come and see. But it's hard. It's hard to be seen as doing good when you have been in a bad place. It's hard to be seen as doing good when you come from Nazareth. It's hard to be seen as doing good when you have a bad reputation, when you have a background, when you have history. Who's ever had some history? Okay, I'm the only one. I got, okay. You got history. And how do you live down a reputation that wants to outlive you? Because we have a tendency to define people by where they've been instead of where they're going. So I asked this question, are there any unlikely in the house? Are there any unlikely to be chosen, unlikely to be accepted, unlikely to succeed, unlikely? And as we read this list of the unlikely, and once again, we see God moving in our nation. And you know, some things amazing about God is God will do things without asking my permission. Isn't that amazing? Perhaps God is once again gathering a collection of unlikely individuals to follow him into extraordinary times. Just maybe, just maybe. If you have your Bibles this morning, let's return to it. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. And this time we're going to pick up verses 46 through 50. Luke chapter 9, verse 46 through 50. And I'm going to read to you out of the Passion Translation. The disciples began to argue and became preoccupied, hmm, preoccupied over who would be the greatest one among them. Fully aware of their innermost thoughts, Jesus called a little child to his side and said to them, if you tenderly care for this little child on my behalf, you are tenderly caring for me. And if you care for me, you're honoring my father who sent me. For the one who is least important in your eyes is actually the most important one of all. The disciple John said, Master, we found someone who was casting out demons using your name and we tried to stop him because he didn't do church the way we do it. Verse 50, Jesus responded, you shouldn't have hindered him. For anyone who is not against you is your friend. Let's title this, What Good Thing? Part two, would you pray with me? Father, bless the reading of your word. 
Holy Spirit, I ask you to help me communicate what you've dropped in my spirit. Give me the anointing of the wordsmith. and Let us communicate clearly and concise the word of the Lord and the thoughts of God. We pray this in Christ's name and everybody said amen. amen. Let's walk through these verses quickly. Verses 46 through 50. The Bible says they were preoccupied with position. Amazing. Preoccupied over who would be the greatest one among them. The argument wasn't who is, but it was who will be the greatest. So they're talking about position, performance. They're talking about a position within the kingdom of God. Remember uh, James and John, their mother, she asked one to sit at your left, one to sit at your right in your kingdom. They're trying to position themselves in the Father's eyes for future plans. They're fussing over who gets to sit where. We know, and we've talked about it here many times, that a childhood experience can equal an adulthood problem. Childhood experience can equal an adulthood problem. Rather, it's through rejection, neglect, or abuse. It can work its way out into adulthood, and it creates problems. And so, is it possible that adulthood ambition is fueled by a childhood experience? My mother said I was ugly, and so I'll sleep with every man I can to prove her wrong. My father said I was stupid and would never amount to anything, so I'll be an overachiever to prove him wrong. People said I never would, so watch me as I go. And we work ourselves into the ground trying to disprove what someone else said about us. Is it possible that an adulthood ambition can be fueled by something that was said to me or happened to me when I was a child, rejected by my father, and so I'm an overachiever in church trying to get my heavenly father's attention, just asking questions. We're talking about these boys. These boys who were preoccupied over who was the greatest among them. And I looked at their life and I found something interesting here. Mark chapter one, verse 20, you remember, without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. James and John, they left their father. The two boys left their trade, their family business, their father, and his plan for their future. Now remember, we're talking about these boys that are trying to gain position. Their background, they abandoned everything. They left their father. And if I'm correct, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that after Mark chapter one, verse 20, uh, we never see Zebedee again. Now they make mention of him, but we never see him again in the storyline. They left their father. Matthew 20 said, he said to her, uh, Jesus speaking, what is it you want? She answered, made the decree that these my sons will rule with you in your kingdom, one sitting on your right and one sitting on your left. Mama's trying to secure a position for them, okay? She's trying to preserve, per, per, uh, secure a position for them in the kingdom. Much like we see unfolding right now in the news with these parents that paid to get their kids in college. And so, uh, y'all gotta understand the tricks of the devil are not new. And so she's trying to get her boys in college and one on the right, one on the left. And, and so why was the mother and not the father attempting to secure their position? Where was the dad at? Then in Mark 3 again, James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. Or in the Greek, it can also read sons of rage. So we see that these boys left their father we see that these boys are, are being led now by their mother. And we see now that these boys are being called the sons of thunder. Now, it can mean the sons of thunder are the sons of rage. Okay? So you still with me? We leave our dad. We don't see dad anymore. What we do see is the mom. And we're called the sons of thunder or the sons of rage. 
and they're trying to jockey for position. They're trying to gain a position with the kingdom. So perhaps their thunder, which is their passion, came from their, father, came from their father's rage. Sons of rage. Perhaps their father was an angry man. And these boys could never measure up to his expectations. So now they're trying to do it within the kingdom. Just perhaps a childhood problem now become, or a childhood issue now becomes an adulthood problem. A father who is demanding, it's critical. A father that's filled with rage. A father that speaks down to these boys. Now they're in the kingdom and they're trying to overachieve. They're trying to prove to their father they will be successful because they left the trade, they left the family business, they left their father, they walked away from his plans, they left him and walked away, and now they're trying to prove to their dad that they can be successful. They can, they're trying to prove to their dad that we will have a place within the kingdom. Often adult, adulthood ambition is the result of childhood insecurities. My dad said, you'll never amount to anything. Never amount to anything. And so I overachieve trying to prove him wrong. Just food for thought. Just food for thought. That our insecurities oftentimes drive us in the things that we do. And so I found myself typing this question. Do I put others down in an attempt to pull myself up? Now remember, we're talking about these disciples that are arguing over who is the greatest. They're arguing over position. They're arguing over getting Jesus and his attention, over getting the Father's attention. And so they're competitive. And, and I ask the question, and, and, am, I, am I pushing people down in the kingdom in order to try to pull myself up? Do I try to dismiss people to make myself look better? Am I critical of others to make my candle burn a little brighter? I'm just asking questions. So everybody just realized, I felt the air just suck right out of the room. <laughs> Adulthood ambition that results from a childhood insecurity. I was told that I'm, I'm stupid and I'll never amount to anything. A childhood insecurity. And so as an adult, I'm driven now, an overachiever, an overachiever, type A personality. I'm gonna succeed. I'm gonna be the best, the best. Excellence, perfectionism. I'm gonna be the best because I was told when I was a child I would never amount to anything. And so I can see the boys leaving Zebedee, leaving their, their family business and leaving his plans for them and leaving uh, their father and, and his objection and he's a man of rage and he's angry and he's, where are y'all going? And, and, they, and, and they're, they're walking away and he's saying, you, you, you're never gonna amount to anything. You're never. This whole thing with Jesus, this is crazy. That's a cult. What are you doing getting involved in a cult? And, and they were, he was critical of these boys and, and he was, they, as they were walking away, they, they, he's calling out after them saying, you're, you're, you're stupid and this is, you're crazy, what are you doing? And so now they're driven to prove to their dad that I'm gonna, we're gonna be the best and we're gonna succeed, we're gonna succeed. And so I'm asking the question, today in the church, are we still in an effort to pull ourselves up, are we still pushing people down? I'm gonna be the greatest. I'll sit at his right hand. I'll sit at his left hand. I, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be, not you. This competitive spirit within the church world of constantly trying to, trying to jockey for position and trying to be the number one, is it still there? And as I was looking at this story, of these guys, these preachers that were arguing over who's gonna be the greatest. I, I felt Holy Spirit dealing with my heart that in these last days, the, the homecoming of the prodigal son will reveal the elder brother in each of us. That as God brings back the prodigal sons and they take their place in the church and they look different, they smell different, they minister different, they, they, don't, they don't look quite like what I'm used to. Suddenly, that, that prodigal son that comes home is going to enrage the elder brother in me. That I've been here all this time, Where, where's he been? 
I've been faithful unto you for many years and I've been loyal and I've been keeping it clean and I've been keeping it straight. And, and, and now he comes back and, and you're going to roll out the red carpet for him. You're going to kill the fatted calf. All the attention is on this one or that one on him or her or what, what is this all about? Where have I been? When did you kill the fatted calf for me? It's the Holy Spirit dealt with me that as the prodigal sons and daughters come home, it perhaps will reveal the elder brother in all of us. Is discrediting my brother an attempt to gain my father's approval? Just a question. The sons of Zebedee, who were called the sons of thunder, passionate. Why were they so passionate? Perhaps they were trying to prove something to their dad. And are we still doing that? Trying to prove something to our heavenly father. Trying to gain his approval. Performing for his approval. And pushing each other down. Pushing people down. Criticizing others. Criticizing others. People that preach different than I preach. People that, that, that just, just take a different approach. We're not talking about truth. We're not talking about the message. We're talking about the method. We're talking about style, but suddenly you start, you start criticizing other people, blowing out other candles to make my candle burn just a little brighter because I want my father's attention. Just a question. Preoccupied. They were preoccupied with position. Are you still with me? Still with me. Okay. Let's look at the next verse. And I call this discussions with a broken heart. Because in verse 46, they're arguing over who's the greatest. I'm going to be the best. And now in verse 47, it says, fully aware of their innermost thoughts. That caught my attention. Innermost, deep, deep, deep thoughts. Jesus called a little child to his side and began to talk to him. This caught my attention that what they were arguing about was coming from deep inside. That's why I mentioned about a childhood experience living under a father of rage and who's, who's, he's intolerant of mistakes and weakness, and you can never please him. Living under that can cause you to become an overachiever and to say, let me sit on your right and on your left, and I'm the greatest, and we're the best. Trying somehow to prove him wrong. This was coming from an innermost thoughts. The this argument came from a very deep place. And so I looked in the Greek on this thoughts of the heart. And what it means is discussions of a broken heart. This innermost thought that they were having was the discussions they were having with themselves. The discussions of a broken heart. Deep inside, they were thinking, I'm the son of rage, the father that I could never please. The father that, he was so critical of me. He said, I'd never amount to anything. He said, following this, Jesus of Nazareth was insanity. I was walking away from a great career, a great business, all his plans for my life to take up some fanatic from Galilee. And I was gonna be a failure. But I'm gonna prove him wrong. I'm gonna prove him wrong. I'm gonna be the best. I'm gonna prove him wrong. And they're, they're, they're debating this thing, this inner struggle. And it's a struggle that we all deal with in this house and on the web. We all deal with it. We all have these inner struggles, this discussions of a broken heart. We talk about our physical appearance, our intellectual life, our financial security, our relationships, lack of achievement, acceptance by our peers, approval from friends and family, position of prominence in society. We all have these discussions of a broken heart. We want to prove to people that we are the best. We need acceptance, we need approval. We need this so desperately in society. And this discussion that we have with ourselves comes from a broken heart. We're all broken. Is there anyone in the room that's not broken? We're all broken people. For in sin did my mother conceive me. So we struggle with our appearance. I don't, I'm not pretty enough. We struggle with our financial security. I don't make enough money. We struggle with, with acceptance by others. We're constantly concerned about what people think about us and their approval of us. And, and so we struggle with these things. These are the inner struggles that we all have 
discussions of the broken heart. Broken people. Mark chapter seven says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Notice this, envy, slander, and arrogance, and among other things. All these evils come from inside and they defile a person. And so I realized that it's from our deepest insecurities that come the most defiling words. From my insecurities, I criticize others. From my insecurities, I dismiss others. From my insecurities, I push people down. I push people down and I effort to pull myself up. You see, I have to dismiss you in order to make myself look better. I have to criticize you in order to make myself look better. I have to push you down so I can get a leg up. We fight one another in our churches and our communities. We're constantly fighting one another, dismissing one another. We're constantly, constantly tearing each other down, trying to get a leg up. And we don't understand that the words we speak come from a broken place. It comes from an insecurity. He'll never amount to anything. She'll never amount to anything. You can't trust him. You can't trust her. We question people's motives. They can't be saved. God can't be anointing them. Can't be using them. Impossible. Can't be. What good thing could come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Jesus? Jesus, we know who he is. They called him Mary's boy, which means that he wasn't Joseph. He was an illegitimate son. Really? You're going to use him? You got to be kidding me. The Sadducees and the, public, uh, the Pharisees were just, they were blown away that God would use Jesus. They couldn't understand it. How could God choose this guy, a carpenter from Nazareth, who has the reputation of being illegitimate? Surely God can't use him. They struggled with it. And we read that and we're amazed at it, and yet we still do it today. Can't use him, can't use her. People come into our churches and suddenly we see God using people that just don't quite match up to our, to our ideal of a minister. We struggle with it. No, come on. We struggle with it. We struggle with it. We do. We watch people come in and we don't understand. And then we begin to say things and we don't realize that it's from our deepest insecurities that we're actually defiling one another with hateful words, with a mean spirit, with criticism. It's defiling the church. The second thing here we find is to address their innermost thoughts, their discussions of a broken heart. Jesus chose a child. Now, I thought this, I, I just, you know, I struggled with that a little bit. I thought, you see, for his object lesson, Jesus could have chosen a beggar, a foreigner, or a Samaritan who was half Gentile, half Jew, and they called them dogs. He could have chose them to speak of the lesser, a beggar, a foreigner, or a Samaritan, but instead he chose a child, a child. Why would he choose a child? You have to understand that in Jesus' day, children were not esteemed and held no status or importance. Children were not accepted as covenant members until the age of 12 or 13. Okay, Jesus chooses this child. And so he, he, he chooses a child. And you have to understand that when he pulls this child up next to him, there's a visual, there's an optic here that he's getting. So you're seeing the stature, the personal stature of Jesus. Here's a man that he speaks with authority. I mean, they said of him, never before have we ever heard a man speak as you do. So Jesus is pretty, okay, we'll say he's an imposing personality, okay? And so you've got this little child next to him, this personal stature, and then you've got this personal fame. Jesus' fame went everywhere. No one knew this child. And then third, you had this personal status in the community. Jesus 
was, he had, he had some status. I mean, they, this is Jesus of Nazareth. And for some, they followed him. And so he had recognition. This child had no status. And so you have to see the optic of what's happening here. And so he's got this child next to him. And Jesus is, is looming over this child. And he begins to talk to them in verse 48. Whoever receives this little child in my name, he receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be the greatest. Now leave that on the screen, guys, just for a moment. The word received there in the Greek means to accept, to take with the hand, and to grant access. So to receive somebody is to accept them for who they are, to give them the right hand of fellowship, and to give them access into your life, into who you are. You receive them, okay? And so when you look at this verse 48, you see that number one, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me and him who sent me. So here's the statement for you. The man of humility that grants access into his life is the man that gains access into his presence. The man of humility. that accepts the least is a man that gains access into God's presence. I've preached for years that God is looking for a man or a woman that he can trust with his anointing, a man or a woman of integrity. But let's add to that today, humility. Someone that will associate with the lesser someone that will not push people down to try to lift themselves up. Someone that will prefer their brother before themselves. Someone that's not preoccupied with position. Someone that's not all entangled in the discussions of a broken heart. Someone that's put their insecurities behind them and they're secure enough to let somebody else have the credit. Oh my God. Please tell me I'm not lost in the weeds. Please tell me you're with me. A man of humility that grants access into his life. That can go to a dinner as Jesus did and let a prostitute wash his feet. That is known, a reputation for eating with publicans and sinners. A man that is called a prophet. Some called him the Messiah. And yet he welcomed the children to come to him and he'd get on the ground and he'd play with them and he'd say, forbid not the children to come to me. The man, the man that grants or the man that accepts the least is a man that will gain access into God's presence. And then number two in verse 48, he said, for he who is least among you all will be great. The statement here is true greatness is found through accepting and not asserting. Accepting and not asserting. To accept the least, to accept your place, to accept other people, to make room for others and not just assert yourself and step on people while you climb the corporate ladder. To make room for somebody else. Accepting of others that may be different than you. The color of their skin, their social status, their education, their finances, their background, their culture, accepting others. True greatness, true greatness is a man or a woman that can accept others that are different than him or her. True greatness is found in accepting and not asserting, pushing and pulling and jerking and criticizing out of their insecurity, defiling people. True greatness is found in accepting that not everyone is like me. True greatness. Perhaps, am I, am I making sense? Perhaps when we give a helping hand, remember the word receive, put it back on the screen. The word receive means to take with a hand. To whom much is given, much is required. When God puts you in a position of authority, it's for the purpose of serving others. 
And that's a word to all the leaders across this nation, religious, business, or political. When God puts you in a position of authority and he gives you response, he gives you resources and opportunity, you have to be responsible with that. And your responsibility is to give a helping hand to those who follow. Not to push people down, but to lift them up. To speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. To fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. To help people that can't help themselves. That's what it means to be a leader. That's what it means to be a man or a woman of God. That's what it means to lead in the church and in the political arena. To help those who can't help themselves. That's what it means. To accept and not to assert. Helping him. Perhaps, perhaps talking about when you receive the child, Jesus said, you receive me. When you receive me, you receive my father. So let's go back and say it again. When you give a helping hand to the child, when you give a helping hand to the lesser, you give a helping hand to me, you give a helping hand to my father. So let's make the statement. Perhaps when we give a helping hand to the, to the least, we're holding the hand of God. When we give a helping hand to the least. Got my wife to say, wow, I'm cooking with gas now. <laughs> when you give a helping hand to the least, perhaps you're holding the hand of God. During the flood of Imelda Harvey, Go out, be with people. Those that were displaced, people that were devastated, walking around, people holding infants who were flooded. And now they're at the old Central High School gym, holding infants with no place to go. You talk to people, and their eyes begin to cheer up because they lost everything. I have no insurance. If we don't help them, they're not going to get any help. And as you're walking in and among the least, it's then that you feel his presence, sometimes the greatest. When you're there, Perhaps when we give a helping hand to someone, we're holding the hand of God. My last point. Jesus was actually talking about sectarianism. Verse 49, the disciple John said, Master, we found someone who was casting out demons using your name and we tried to stop him. Made a lot of sense because he doesn't follow you like we do. A lot of sense. Sectarianism means of single religious group, dogmatic and intolerant. Either you do it our way and you don't do it at all. Leave the scripture on the screen. Number one, the disciple John said, Master, a sectarian can struggle with another success. John was struggling. Insecurity and the need for approval can cause people to resent the success of others in relationships, finances, business, and even in ministry. So John, he said, master. Funny, he didn't say rabbi. He, said, he, didn't, he didn't say teacher, he said master. It felt like John was trying to realign himself or reposition himself or make sure that master, we're still okay with each other, right? You're not getting all your attention over here on these guys. You watch me, keep your eyes on me. I struggle with their success, Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You see, we have to learn how to rejoice with other people's success. You see what envy is? Envy says, you got some of my stuff and I want it. I, look, I don't have your stuff. I got my stuff, you go get yours. I worked hard to get what I've got. Go work and get your stuff, okay? 
But envy says, I envy people. It's like they got maybe something that's rightfully mine. And so we envy each other. And, and, and so we see that, that these guys, they're worried. They're worried that these people are going to get some attention. They're over there casting out demons. And as I remember, I don't think the disciples were really good at that. Okay, we'll leave that alone. So they're jealous of these people and they're not rejoicing with them. They're not rejoicing. But the Bible makes it clear that I should rejoice with those that rejoice. Your success is my success. When you get a raise, man, I'm happy. When you get a promotion, I rejoice with you. I, I, listen, you get a new home, I celebrate with you. When God anoints you, I am so glad. When God, here we go, when God uses you in a service and not me, I'm there clapping for you. When God steps over the pastor and says, son, go sit down, you've said enough. I'm gonna use this little saint right here. I'm gonna pick the unlikely and use somebody that everyone else says I can't use. Watch me do what I do through the unlikely. Watch what I will do that is unbelievable. So preachers, sit down and watch what I do with the saints of God. Listen, it's okay for me to sit down and rejoice when somebody else has got my father's attention. Oh my God. You want to tell you how to have joy? Who wants joy? Rejoicing in God's goodness to others will keep you full with endless joy because God is always helping somebody. Everybody said, well, I'm so sad. Well, rejoice with other people. Just look around you and go, man, look at look, that guy over there. He got a new truck. Look at this. She got a promotion. What? They got a brand new home. They got a raise. Suddenly, you're just full of joy because you're just rejoicing. You're just rejoicing with people around you. You're just full of joy. So regardless of how you may feel, please be assured that no one is successful to spite you. People get successful and they're not doing it just to irritate you. So rejoice with them. Well, I just can't believe they bought that new house. That, 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 they can't afford that. That's just, that's more house than they, can, they need. That, who do they think they are? Oh, they think they're so something. Look at them. They think they're so special buying that BMW. I know for a fact that they're overextended. Who does she think she is coming in with that fur coat on? Oh, she thinks she's all that in a bag of chips. You better cut that out. You better cut that out. You better cut that out. They're not being successful to spite you. They're just living out their life under the blessings of God and your joy will be endless when you learn how to rejoice with those who rejoice. Celebrate people. We're running out of time, Jesus. Put verse 49 back on the screen. We're gonna go quick, hold on, buckle up. Verse 49, number two in that verse. I can squeeze a life out of a verse, man. Just mm. a sectarian, people that are intolerant of others. A sectarian is threatened by someone, his or her equal or superior. That's why they said, we found someone who was casting out demons using your name and we stopped them. <laughs> who do they think they are casting out demons? The disciples were more concerned with the exclusivity and who gets the credit than they were of defeating demons? I want to be exclusive. My church, no other churches in Beaumont. My church and only my church. Make room for nobody. My ministry and only my ministry. Nobody preaches like me. Nobody sings like me. Nobody's anointed like me. How dare they think they could fight the devil in Beaumont? <laughs> Exclusivity. And who gets the credit is more important than defeating demons. John chapter 21, 
Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. The disciples were more concerned about method than they were about message. And you need to know this, the Bible may reveal God, but it does not contain him. Now I know that irritates some people, but that's what John 21 said. Let me tell you something, taking nothing away from the precious, infallible, unadulterated word of God, it reveals him. But there's more to him than just what we have right now. You understand? There's more to him. Now what we believe and what we preach and teach needs to be consistent with the doctrine of that book, okay? So don't email me, I ain't interested, okay? I'm not taking away from the word. But I am just telling you that we get so caught up in methods that we forget the message. We get so caught up in who gets credit and exclusivity. We get so caught up, rather, because God's using a Baptist? God can't use Baptist. Don't use Pentecostals. You can't anoint a Baptist. You can't anoint a Methodist. Exclusivity, denominations, sectarianism, and tolerant. The third thing, verse 49, put it back up. Diversity demands unity, and unity allows for diversity. We must never sacrifice truth for unity, but we must recognize it's our diversity that makes us strong. Black and white and brown. Baptist and Methodist, Catholic, Pentecostal, Church of God, independent. It's that diversity that makes us so strong. There are certain things that I would die for, but there are other things that I hold loosely. But we have to learn there is room for diversity. Unity allows for that. And that, that diversity, it demands it. We have to have unity. We have to agree to disagree and come together for the sake of the world. I want you to listen to, to Luke chapter nine. I, I'm almost done. We're gonna get, it, get you out of here. Luke chapter nine. I wanna read down just a little further after our story. I'm gonna read to you verse 51. Now, now, before we get into this, verse 46 through 50, the disciples, perhaps because of a childhood experience, is arguing over who's gonna be the best and who's the greatest. They're trying to fight for position because I'm gonna prove to my dad that I'm, I'm the son of thunder, I'm the son of rage. He told me I wouldn't amount to anything, but I'm gonna prove him wrong, I'm gonna be the best. They're fighting over greatness. And Jesus tries to teach them that you must become like a child. And through that humility of preferring your brother over yourself, then you'll find true greatness, true greatness. And then he deals with this sectarianism. He says, listen, there's room for diversity. You don't have to worry about who gets credit but we've got to come together. And he said, don't worry about if they do it a little different than you do. If they're not your enemy, he said, they're your friend. We're all pulling together. And then it shifts and pick up, listen to verse 51. Jesus passionately determined to leave for Jerusalem and let nothing distract him from fulfilling his mission there for the time for him to be lifted up was drawing near. So he sent messengers ahead of him as envoys to the village of the Samaritans. And remember, Samaritans, half Jew, half Gentile, they're called dogs, half breed. But as they approached the village, they were turned away. <laughs> These half breeds turned the Messiah away? Wow. They would not allow Jesus to enter for he was on his way to worship in Jerusalem. He's going to the temple to worship. He's the Messiah. And the Samaritans, they snubbed him. Verse 54. When the disciples, Jacob and John, realized what was happening, they came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you want to, we'll command fire, come down from heaven, and we'll just consume these people like Elijah did. We'll destroy every one of them. Ain't that a good thing in church? Ain't that good? You see, we don't do it directly like that now. We do it on social media now. Okay, so... Oh. 
want to give you a word of encouragement. If you ain't got the, the guts to say it to their face, then don't put it on social media. Okay. Verse 55, Jesus rebuked them sharply saying, don't you realize what comes from your hearts? Remember discussions of a broken heart, insecurities from childhood. Are you tracking with me? Connect the dots. Don't you realize what comes from your heart that's broken? Your childhood experience, your insecurities, your fears, all the struggles you have that comes from your hearts when you say that? Don't you get it? Don't you realize what comes from your hearts when you say that? For the Son of Man did not come to destroy life, but to bring life to the earth. And then a powerful statement. So they went to another village instead. Key verse. The Son of God, the Messiah, Jew, chosen people of God, the apple of his eye, is on his way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. But he wants to go through this Samaritan town, this village, half-breeds, arguing over all the time who was right in church. The Jews said worship in the temple. The Samaritans said worship on the mountain. They're arguing over method and not message, fighting and fussing all the time. And Jesus comes and he just wants to help and they rejected him because we're still in this discussions of the heart over who's right, who's wrong, who's the greatest, who's the least, who's up, who's down. And if I'm gonna look good, I gotta push you down to lift myself up. And instead of calling down fire from heaven, the Bible says that Jesus just went to another village. Here's a word to those of you that feel like you're different and you're constantly being rejected by organized religion. Just know this, rejection is not final. Just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. If one village closed the doors, just kiss them and bless them and walk on and go to another village because rejection is not final. Man does not have the last word, only God does. Stephen, come help me. Only God does. Only God does. Only God does. I want you to notice there with Jesus and the Samaritans, he didn't get critical, ugly, call down fire from heaven. He was kind and compassionate. And he just went on. You see, that's a true sign of greatness, accepting, giving a helping hand to those that can't help themselves, reaching out, preferring my brother before myself. This morning, we've got to examine our hearts. We have to, because I've shown you a thread through this story where these guys were struggling Struggling, struggling with who's gonna be the greatest. You see, the disciples concern themselves with greatness, but Jesus draws their attention to a child. The primary meaning, of course, is humility is the pathway to greatness. Luke 9, verse 48, he said, for the one who is least important in your eyes is actually the most important one of all. For me, that screams out, Randy, the pathway to his presence is through helping those that can't help themselves. The least. Humility accepting, making room for others, preferring my brother before myself. But I just want to, I just want to pose a thought to you. Is it possible? Is it I'm asking you a question. That Jesus chose a child instead of a beggar 
a foreigner or a Samaritan for his object lesson regarding the least? Is it possible that he chose a child? Not only because children were held no status or importance at the time, not only because he was larger in his stature and his fame and his status, not just that, is it possible maybe Jesus was trying to address the discussions of a broken heart? That he was trying to get these guys to realize that they had a childhood experience that's created an adulthood problem. He said, the one that is seen as the least among you is the greatest. And most people in this room and on the web sees themselves as the least. We struggle with insecurities, we struggle with fear, we struggle with rejection. Maybe, and I don't wanna to sound too much like a psychologist, please just, please forgive me, but maybe in order to really step into my greatness as an adult, I've gotta deal with that childhood experience. Maybe I've gotta deal with what happened in my heart. And when I deal with this, maybe it will help me to help others. Maybe when I deal with my insecurity, it will free me to make others feel secure. There it is. Maybe when I deal with my insecurities, it will help me to make others feel secure. The Bible said this, the disciples began to argue and became preoccupied over who would be the greatest one among them. Fully aware of their innermost thoughts, the discussions of a broken heart, Jesus called a little child to his side and he said to them, my question for you this morning is what is God saying to you? Thank you for listening to the Cathedral Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit icathedral.org.